good morning, everyone. It's nice to see you here today on this beautiful day. Uh, feels like summer out there, doesn't it? <laughs> I do want to take a moment as well to welcome anyone who is joining us on our live feed. You know, usually when I come up here, I, I talk about my mom, who faithfully watches us on the, on the live feed from her apartment in Kitchener, Ontario. She's been doing that for, oh, I don't know, for a year and a half or so. Um, but I just wanted to give you an update. Uh, Mom has been going through a series of hip replacement surgeries, and uh, she had one back a year ago in November, and then she had another one at the beginning of summer, and she's um, gone through all of the treatments afterwards, and she actually has a lot more mobility now, and so she's able to go to her home church, which is Highland Baptist in Kitchener. So she no longer joins us on our live feed. Um, but I'm sure she'll check us out later today. But all this to say, welcome to anyone who is joining us today out there in live feed land. Well, this morning we're going to continue with For Our City, our teaching series on what it looks like to share faith with another person, to offer them the life-changing opportunity to meet Jesus. And today we're focusing on the power of conversation by unpacking a wonderful story in John chapter 4, verses 4 to 18. You can look it up on your phone, if you wish, or, or in the red Bible under the chair in front of you. Uh, the story begins on page 1651. And let me read it for us. Now he, that is Jesus, had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Never underestimate the changing power of a conversation. That's what I want to say to you up front as we take a closer look now at John chapter 4. You know, it's my privilege as community outreach pastor at Rivercross to see how the simple back and forth of conversation when it's grounded in a very real experience of friendship, can change a person. Our church's community outreach work based at Rivercross Mission, just down the hill, about a 15-minute walk away, focuses on St. John's two largest low-income neighborhoods, 
the Old North End, and Crescent Valley. And I know the moment I say low-income neighborhoods, you're thinking of all the real and practical ways that life is hard for the folks who call these places home. But please be careful to not draw too sharp a distinction between their lives and your life. Because the truth is their deepest needs, like you and me, are actually emotional and spiritual. Many of them lead what I would describe as disconnected lives. They feel as if they're strangers to each other and alone in the world. They're desperate to belong somewhere, to have someone take an interest in them, to be loved, to be in good relationships that build up rather than tear down. Have you ever felt that way? It's a common human experience, isn't it? That's where River Cross Mission comes in. We provide disconnected people with a deep sense of spiritual belonging. You get a sense of this at the mission's Tuesday and Friday drop-in program. From the moment people walk through the doors and are welcomed by followers of Jesus, they know and experience a loving God who desires only that they become family. And at the heart of this experience of family is this, the family dinner table, if you like. People at the mission sit around tables together, enjoying friendship and sharing conversation. Lots and lots of conversation, sometimes about the weather or the Blue Jays, but it also often goes to a deeper, life-changing place. That's Alan Gray up on the screen. Some years ago, until his passing in 2010, Alan was a regular at the mission. Here was a guy who, in the eyes of the world, didn't amount to much, frankly. He was poor, his health was broken, he lacked the social graces, shall we say, and he was alone. One day, Alan came strolling by the mission and Rob Parent, our caretaker, who was outside sweeping the sidewalk, got into a conversation, inviting him in, where he was welcomed by the mission ministry team with open arms. And trust me, that wasn't easy. I say this with great affection. Alan wasn't a comfortable guy to be around, rough around the edges but also harmless as they come. So Alan became a fixture at the mission. He came, as he said, in his baptismal testimony, first because I was just plain bored with life, but I kept coming back because I discovered a bunch of people who really cared about me. People at the mission took the time to be friends with him, to actually talk to Alan, to show a genuine interest in him, to lavish practical acts of love and kindness on him. And Alan changed. There's no other way to say it. He just plain changed. His life and heart opened up as he came face to face with Jesus, to whom he joyously surrendered his life. The mission in general, but Alan's story in particular, teaches us something important about the power of conversation. Here it is. Once you've formed a real relationship with another person where the trust is true and friendship warm, meaningful conversation will simply happen. But getting to that kind of relationship where that kind of conversation can happen, well, that's the challenge, which brings us to the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. John chapter 4, verse 3 tells us that Jesus is on his way from Judea in southern Palestine to Galilee in the north, taking the fastest route, a three-day journey through the land of the Samaritan people. 
The fastest route, sure, but still a long, hard walk that felt longer and harder as the sun climbed the sky to the heat of the day at 12 noon, or the sixth hour, as it says in verse 6. Finally, Jesus and his disciples, bone-weary, hot, hungry, thirsty, arrive at Jacob's well just outside the Samaritan town of Sychar, located at the foot of Mount Gerizim. The disciples head to town to scrounge up some food, leaving Jesus alone at the well. The fact that Jesus was alone there isn't all that surprising. The women from the town would come to Jacob's well together in the early morning before anyone else was up in the cool of the day to do the hard work of drawing water and carrying it back to town. It was work you avoided when the sun was high in the sky. So the surprise in this story is what comes next. Verse 7, a Samaritan woman came to draw water. The fact that she's there alone at the wrong time with no other women lets us know that this is a person with a story to tell. But of course, Jesus already knows that. Verse 4, now he had to go through Samaria. Notice the had. It's not just that Samaria was the fastest route from Judea to Galilee. Jesus also took it because he had a divine appointment to keep. A fact that's confirmed by verse 18, when Jesus, drawing on his divine insight, unpacks the story of her life. He knows all about her. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. So here's the point. The questionable character of this woman has branded her an outcast in the town. She is shunned by the other women whom she avoids at all costs, even if it means fetching water at the worst possible time of day. But that's not all. She's also a Samaritan. In the eyes of the Jews of Jesus' day, Samaritans were half-breed social misfits with a bad religious pedigree. Their bloodlines were wrong. They were descendants of marriages between Israelites and Assyrians. Their religion was wrong mixing Jewish and Assyrian religious practices. They worshipped in a separate temple on Mount Gerizim, towering over the nearby town of Sychar, and used a different Bible and had different ideas about the Messiah. Bottom line, Jews and Samaritans didn't get along, with a violent history at worst and a testy relationship at best. And there's one more thing about this woman, the fact that she is a woman. Look, let's face it, folks. Back in the time of Jesus, men made the rules and women followed them if they knew what was good for them. They had no identity in their own right. They got their identity first from their fathers, then from their husbands. So the family home basically defined the boundaries of their world. The world outside the home was only for men, and women were kept separate from it by strict rules. They never ventured alone out in public unless accompanied by a male family member who wouldn't speak to them as they walked along. And they were absolutely prohibited from coming anywhere near a male stranger. Bottom line, women were to be neither seen nor heard. Yet here is Jesus, a Jewish man who is a stranger in a foreign land alone at a well with an outcast Samaritan woman of questionable character. If Jesus knew what was good for him, he would have avoided any entanglement at all costs. 
But what does Jesus do? Verse 7. Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? Jesus speaks to this woman. He takes a huge risk. He cuts across the dividing walls between them, and a relationship is formed. Trust starts to grow. Good, honest conversation begins to flow. You know, when it came to people, my dad, Ken Knight, took risks too. Many of you know that dad was a pastor and a missionary. And he had such a down-to-earth way about him, a love for people, especially for people on the margins of church world who were on the outside looking in. I can recall two men in particular, Jim and Gil, who had very little in common with each other except the fact that they both didn't like church. Jim worked in a brewery, and he'd had it up to here with Christians criticizing him for it. While Gil was Métis, had grown up in foster care, and had a thoughtful but critical view of the historically difficult relationship between the church and First Nations communities. Well, Jim and Gil might not have liked church, but Dad liked them. And I think one of the pivotal moments in, the gro in their growing relationship with each other was the time that Dad, a solid Baptist pastor, if there ever was one, took a risk and went to the local pub with these two, where they both, no doubt, did not order strictly Baptist cold ones. And as for my dad, well, what he ordered will forever remain a family secret. <laughs> but you know, dad didn't take this risk just for the sake of a risk. He loved Jim and Gil. He was searching for a way into their worlds, a way to open them up, to build trust through affectionate interest. In fact, that's how I describe all of dad's pastoral relationships with people. Dad always led with love in such a natural way that people simply began to share their stories. That's what happened with Jim and Gil. And eventually, they showed up at church. At Jacob's well, Jesus didn't take a risk just for the sake of a risk. He was searching for a way into this outcast Samaritan woman's world, a way to open her up. And once he crosses the divide by speaking to her, the next thing he does is to lead with love. So what do I mean by that? Well, just imagine for a moment if you were Jesus and all the things you could have said to this woman when she first arrived at the well. What are you doing here in the heat of the day? Why is there no man with you? How come you've had so many husbands and now you're just living with a man? How do you think that would have gone over? Not well, I'm guessing. It would have been more same old, same old, right? More of what she'd been dealing with from the town people the last thing she needed to hear. This woman obviously has, was dealing with deep wounds in her life, a ton of hurt. What she needed most was to know that someone genuinely cared about her. Jesus has already communicated that he is that someone by the simple fact that he dared to speak to her. What an astonishing moment for this woman who's been shunned, who should be seen as an enemy, who should be treated as a nobody because she is a she. You can sense her grappling to make sense of all this in her reply to Jesus. Verse 9, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? But don't look past the fact that she actually replied. The whole situation here dictates that Jesus and this woman shouldn't be speaking to each other. Yet she too takes a risk and answers back. 
because deep in her heart, she senses that this man is different. He really cares. This gives Jesus the opening he needs to take the next step. Having asked her to quench his physical thirst, his desperate need for a cool cup of water, he shifts the conversation to her spiritual thirst. Jesus speaks in verse 10 about the gift of living water, water that Jesus claims in verse 13 will forever quench a person's thirst. Whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now the woman is still trying to sort this all out. She's still caught up in what I'd call literal thinking. It's clear in verses 13 to 15 that she still thinks that Jesus is talking about plain, ordinary water. And she's puzzled about where the well is, how Jesus is going to fetch it without a bucket. But at the same time, she likes the sound of this eternal, thirst-quenching living water because think of all the back-breaking labor it'll save her from. Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. But of course, there's something deeper going on here too, isn't there? Jesus could have begun his conversation with this woman by checking off an itemized list of all her sins and shortcomings. But instead, he led with love, shifting the conversation to the deepest longing of her life, her desperate need to know and experience real love, and offering her the gift of living water that would satisfy that longing forever. And something about all this is starting to put down roots in her soul. So her reply, Sir, give me this water, is also the deep-down cry of a heart opening up, learning to trust, and now ready to grapple with truth. And Jesus doesn't disappoint, getting real with her in a hurry. Verse 16, Go, call your husband, and come back. Wow, she didn't see that one coming. Yet it's a testament to the trust and care she has experienced in the presence of Jesus that far from backing off, she starts to come clean instead. Verse 17, I have no husband, she replied, to which Jesus answers out of his divine insight, telling her the story of her life with its parade of broken relationships, five husbands, and now just living with a man. But not, and this is so important to understand, not as a word of judgment on her. No, as a word of affirmation that in her confession, I have no husband, she's now ready to grapple with spiritual matters of the heart. Notice how verse 18 ends. What you have just said is quite true. Jesus is saying, in other words, hey, now you're finally ready to come clean, and now we're ready to really deal with things. Okay, so let's review what we've learned so far. Jesus takes a risk. He actually speaks to this woman and establishes a real relationship with her at the well, one where trust grows and honest conversation begins to flow. And he steers this conversation towards life-changing matters of the heart by leading with love, focusing on the woman's deepest longing, not her sins and shortcomings, before finally getting real, pushing her when the moment is right to come clean about her life. And then Jesus takes one more step. But first, a story. A story with a, a local connection, although it took place a long time ago in a faraway land. The land is India, and the time is February 1907. 
A woman named Elizabeth Gaunce, originally from Appahawk, just up the road from here, was serving as a Canadian Baptist missionary in the district of Gajapati in the state of Orissa. There were other missionaries serving there too. One of them, Maud Harrison, would go to the weekly market in the town of Rayagada to hand out scripture booklets to people. The booklet was entitled, The Way of Salvation. Well, one day, a man named Bispanath, along with a friend of his, who were from a village up in the mountains about 30 kilometers away, showed up at Elizabeth's door in the town of Parlikamundi. They'd been to the Rayagada market and got hold of one of these scripture booklets. Now they wanted to ask Elizabeth what this meant, the way of salvation. Elizabeth graciously welcomed them into her home and offered hospitality. She then shared her faith in Jesus and invited them to stay to learn more. And they did. For the next several days, at least a week, Elizabeth, along with Indian Christian colleagues in the town, spent leisurely time in conversation with Bisvanath and his friend, answering their questions. They explained who Jesus is and what he'd accomplished through his life and ministry, his death and resurrection. A few weeks later, Bisvanath embraced the way and became a follower of Jesus. The last thing that Jesus does in his conversation with this woman at the well is to show her the way and invite her to embrace it. There's a whole chunk of this story that we haven't read this morning. It continues on for several more verses. When Jesus demonstrates the divine insight he has into this woman's life, five husbands and now you're living with a man, something happens. The woman realizes she's in the presence of a person with a more than natural perception of life and reality. Someone deeply spiritual who can see right inside our hearts and expose the truth. So she thinks Jesus must be a prophet, verse 19, which gets her to thinking, verse 20, now that this prophet Jesus has exposed my truth, my sins, it's time I set things right with God. But where should I go to meet with God and offer an atoning sacrifice? At the Jerusalem temple as you Jews would? Or on Mount Gerizim as we Samaritans do? This allows Jesus to declare, verses 21 to 24, that the time for old arguments is over, done with, finished. A new time is here, verse 23. The time is coming and has now come when a fresh experience of God is possible, when you no longer have to go to a mountain or a temple to make a sacrifice and can meet with God, verse 24, in spirit and in truth instead. Reading between the lines, you can sense that Jesus is willing this woman to open her eyes and see who stands before her. And everything suddenly comes into focus. This is no prophet, Jesus. No, he's someone far greater. Could he possibly be, verse 25, the Messiah, who when he comes will explain everything to us? To which Jesus replies, I who speak to you am he. Folks, do you see what's going on here? Taking a risk, leading with love, getting real. All of that ultimately served one purpose, to guide an outcast Samaritan woman into the way of salvation, to bring her face to face with God and Jesus Christ, the one who is indeed the way, the truth, and the life, so that the longing of her heart could be satisfied in an experience of abundant life. Throughout this teaching series, For Our City, 
Each of us is being challenged to prayerfully consider the four people God is calling us to share faith with, that they might experience a life-changing encounter with Jesus. As we each go about having conversations with these folks, I want to encourage you to keep some questions in mind. What risk should I take to break down the barriers between us? How will I lead with love, communicating care and concern for them first? Where should I choose to get real, moving the conversation to more honest ground? And when will I show the way, inviting them to come face to face with Jesus and receive salvation? Will our conversations make a difference? You bet they will. Never underestimate the changing power of a conversation where real relationships flourish, meaningful conversations simply happen. Conversations that point the way to God and to abundant life. Alan Gray experienced this. So did Jim and Gil and Bisphanath and an outcast Samaritan woman at a well. Now it's time for you and me to go to have that, those same life-changing conversations with our people too. So let's get going. Let's pray together. Loving God, for many of us here today, we've come face to face with your son, Jesus Christ, known the power of your love and been changed, and we are forever grateful. And we ask you now to help us to have life-changing conversations with our friends and family, with colleagues at work and the neighbor right next door, so that you can work through us to bring them into an experience of the abundant life you offer to everyone. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.